Revelation chapter 7. Which, for being in the middle of Revelation, is actually filled with good news for us. So, John writes, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great number, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Absolutely fantastic passage. Now, the book of Revelation is, is a prophetic book. It's events that have yet to take place. The, uh, the, the past tense portion of the book is the first three chapters. John is on the island of Patmos. He has a, a, a vision of Jesus while he is there. Jesus instructs him to take dictation of seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, and John does that in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 4, John describes heaven. He sees God on his throne and describes him, uh, not that God has a, a, any body, any visual appearance. Part of the vision is, is something that John can see to help him comprehend in some sense the nature of God. There are 24 elders there. There are four living creatures there. The four living creatures cry out the holiness of God in worship, and the 24 elders uh, respond by falling down, casting their crowns before the throne and responding in worship. In chapter 5, he sees a seal, or a scroll sealed with seven seals. He sees the lamb. The lamb takes takes the scroll and he is worshipped. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the lamb. 
each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense. And they sing a new song, and they sing a song of praise. And in response to that song of praise, the, the, John hears the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And it, after the angels have worshipped, then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them respond with worship. As chapter 6 opens up, the Lamb of God, Jesus, takes the scroll and he begins to open the scrolls or the seals. And he opens the first six seals. The first four are commonly known as the, the four riders of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fifth seal that John sees under the altar there in heaven, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they had borne. The sixth seal involves a great earthquake which changes the surface of the earth. Mountains and islands are removed from, from their place. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. <coughs> the full moon becomes like blood. The stars of the sky seem to fall to earth because of the, the, the way that the earthquake has, has filled the earth and filled the, the atmosphere with debris. And the people of the world, the kings of the world, the great ones of the world, and all the way down to the slaves of the world, cry out to the mountains and the rocks and beg them to fall on them so that they're hidden from the wrath of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then in verse 17, they, they ask the question which is on so many people's minds, who can stand in the day of the wrath of God? The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, chapter 7 is about who can stand. Chapter 7 is about God's protection of those who are his. It's still a vision. We know that it's, vision. it's a vision because from the vantage point of heaven, John has not changed positions. From the vantage point of heaven, he sees four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. This is clearly visionary language. He sees another angel arising from the, the east, from the rising of the sun with the seal of God. And he calls out to those four angels not to harm the earth until the servants of God have been sealed. The four, the four angels who have been given power to harm the earth, most scholars think, are the four horsemen that we saw in the first, in the, the first four seals that are broken. <coughs> so we have a picture of God's protection of his own. So let's just begin with this understanding. God knows the difference between the wicked and the righteous. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, those who are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3 says. Therefore do not be, become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now, at this time, right now, you are light in the Lord. He's not pointing to some uh, future change, some future transformation. He doesn't say, we know the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, but you, by the strength of your will and by your good character and by your good works, you need to work hard so that perhaps one day you're no longer a son of disobedience. He says, no, you're not a son of disobedience anymore. 
A complete change of identity has already taken place because you've been converted, you've been regenerated, you've been born again in Jesus Christ by grace, through faith. And so he says there that there's a wrath coming upon the sons of disobedience that is not going to come on the children of light. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. The angels know the difference between the evil and the righteous because God knows the difference between the evil and the righteous. And he will throw the evil into the fiery furnace in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In John 3.36, maybe one of the most poignant and profound statements concerning this that we see, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. It'd be easy to turn that around, wouldn't it? And say, whoever does not obey the Son has, has, is judged forever, but whoever obeys the Son has eternal life. But that's not what the Lord says. The Lord says salvation is a matter of belief. It's a matter of faith in Jesus. And damnation is a matter of sinful works. We don't gain salvation by believing. Salvation is by grace through faith, not through human works, ability, effort, intentions, cooperation. It's a gift of God. But judgment comes because of disobedience. Judgment comes because of sin. Judgment comes because of rebellion and the way that that rebellion is worked out. And so what we see here emphasized in, even in the very first verses of Revelation 7 is that God is a, is a perfect marksman. His aim is true. He knows the difference between the wicked and the righteous. None of the, the elect will be lost, as Jesus promised more than once, and none of the wicked will escape. His aim is perfectly true. As we, see the, as we see the sealing take place in verse 4, he says, I, I see the number of those who were sealed, or I heard, I rather, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There are two primary questions that come out of <coughs> verses 4 through 8. And you can probably guess what they are, but I'll tell you just so I can control the conversation because that's who I am. <laughs> the first question is, are we dealing with a literal number or are we dealing with a figurative number, a symbolic number? Uh, I was brought up in, uh, as I came to Christ and began going to church, I have heard my entire Christian life, this is a literal number. These are 144,000 Jews who become evangelists which answers the second question, too, uh, what is meant by every tribe of the sons of Israel. But, you know, it's interesting, as, as, uh, as I kind of got away from the notes, the study notes in my Bible, and I, and I started looking simply at the text where it is, I started to wonder, are we really looking at 144,000, or are we looking at a symbolic number? Some of you have got roughly high opinions or moderately high opinions of my knowledge of Scripture, but my knowledge of future events is limited to what you know. And so I, this, this past week, after spending an, uh, quite a bit of time looking at this, I decided I, I don't do this very much, but I'm just going to read every commentary I can lay my hand on, which was about 75. With the exception of three or four, 
they see this as a symbolic number. Well, let me tell you why that seems to be the case. First of all, the book of Revelation is, is a book that is largely symbolic in nature. It's talking about a literal event. It's talking about the end times judgment. It's talking about God bringing all things uh, into their proper relation, whether it's wickedness being judged or the righteous being spared. But it's, it's presented to us in symbolic language. Most of the time, whenever, whenever we turn, I've just, I've just turned to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That's not symbolic language. What, what we do have is the understanding that walk means live. Stop living like the Gentiles live in the futility of their, their minds. That's, pretty, that's a literal statement. When we go to Ephesians, when we go to Philippians, when we go to uh, Genesis, when we go to most books of the Bible, we take what they say literally unless we're given a reason to take it symbolically. But when you come to a book that is prophetic and a book full of visions, we really need to reverse that and say, I have to begin with the belief that what's said within a vision is visionary language, unless I'm given a reason to believe it, it's literal. Now, behind symbolic language is literal truth. The fact that it's symbolic doesn't mean that it's poetic throwaway. There is something deep behind it. In fact, I think most of the time in Scripture, when you see something given symbolically, it actually has more weight than the symbol does. It's pointing to something that is more substantial. So the majority of the book of Revelation is a series of, of visions. And it makes sense, especially since we start the chapter with four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, who are four angels sent to harm the earth, that when John keeps talking, he would keep talking in symbols and not jump to a, a literal number. The second reason for this is because of the number 12 and the, the uh, cognates would be language, because of the multiples of 12, 144,000 would be a multiple of 12. And then we have 12 tribes and we have 12,000. The number 12 is usually used symbolically in the book of Revelation. We have 24 elders, that's 12 times 2. The New Jerusalem is described as being 12,000 stadia in length, height, and width. I'll tell you what a stadia is at some point in the future. The wall of the New Jerusalem is described as 144 cubits. That's 12 times 12. The tree of life bears 12 kinds of fruit, 12 months of the year. The New Jerusalem also has 12 foundations, which bear the 12 names of the 12 apostles. <laughs> the New Jerusalem has 12 gates, each of which is 12 single pearls. That's a big pearl. I'd hate to see the clam, oyster. I'd hate to see the lemon. I'll let you think on that one for a minute. The woman of Revelation 12, chapter 12 is not symbolic. It's just the chapter. But the woman in, in Revelation 12 has a crown made of 12 stars. So if 144,000 here is literal, it's literally the only time in the book of Revelation where the number 12 or one of its multiples is an actual number. And that bends me toward thinking that this is symbolic, unless there's a reason to believe that it's literal. Now, some would say 
There is a reason to believe that because we have the 12 tribes of Israel, and we have 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. 144,000 is just simple math. But this is a very interesting list of names. We see the list of names here. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. But notice how they're described. They're described as every tribe of the sons of Israel. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll find about a dozen times that the sons of Israel are listed. And they're generally listed uh, for two different purposes. One is to say, this is Jacob or Israel's sons. It's, It's a genealogical list. And that genealogical list is in a different order. It begins with Reuben, Reuben, Simeon, uh, Levi, Judah, Gad, Asher. It proceeds down all the way to Benjamin at the end. It includes Levi because Levi was one of Jacob's sons. And we have that listed that way in the Old Testament several times. Although none of those lists are in the same order. Twelve, Twelve lists, twelve different orders. So we can't count on that. The other way that we see the tribes listed is by the land that they would receive when they came into the promised land. And the order in which they were listed around the the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the large tent in the area set outside when they were on the road. And three tribes were set around each direction. Three to the north, three to the east, three to the south, three to the west. And when you see those lists, the name Levi is missing. Because Levi and his descendants, or the descendants of Levi, rather, were the priestly tribe, and they didn't receive any land. And so Joseph is removed, and Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are substituted. Levi is removed, not because of sin, but because the tribe of Levi doesn't have land, doesn't have territory. Joseph is removed, and Joseph receives a double blessing, his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So in this list, there are two names that are missing. But we see that Levi and Joseph are both there. The names missing are Dan, who was one of Jacob's biological sons, and Ephraim, the second son of Joseph. And so this list, to me, seems to comprise the genealogical list and the geographical list. And 12 is there for the number of completion, the number of perfection, as it symbolizes so often in Scripture. But 144,000, I believe, is a symbolic number pointing to all of Israel. All of Israel. Not all of Israel through history. All of Israel at the moment that the, that the sealing takes place. One of the great promises that God has made is that he will restore his people, Israel. The church does not replace Israel. The promises made to Israel are not simply inherited by the church. As soon as Joshua died in the book of Judges, in the book of jo- at the end of the book of Joshua, start of the book of Judges, we see the nation Israel launch off into idolatry. They're punished repeatedly for their idolatry. They repent repeatedly, but they fall right back in. The first king of Israel, Saul, is essentially kicked off the, the, the throne because of idolatry. He was told to wait. He is not a priest. He is not to offer sacrifices, but he offered sacrifices. Well, 
To step outside what God commands is idolatry. David replaces him. David's son Solomon involves himself with 300 wives, 700 concubines, 1,000 women from foreign lands who mainly bring in their own gods. And he sets up idols and temples and worship places for them throughout the country. He says, oh, I left Jerusalem alone. So the, the kingdom is split in two because of his idolatry. Eventually, the northern kingdom goes into captivity, and the southern kingdom goes into captivity because of their idolatry. When Jesus arrived on the scene, they rejected him because of their idolatry. He didn't fit what they thought he should be. And with the resurrection, with the day of Pentecost, and the birth of the church, And the continued rejection of Israel, Israel became an idolatrous nation. And they've been idolaters ever since. They do not worship the God of the Bible. 1 John 2.23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Israel denies the Son, and so they can't be worshiping the true God of the Bible. They've been in idolatry for 2,000 years. But the point is going to come. This visionary picture says, I believe, when God will seal the entire nation, every Jew on the face of the earth, he will break them of their idolatry, bring them to repentance of it, and cleanse them of it, and cause them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really one of the significant purposes for the tribulation period, is to bring Israel back to full restoration to their God. They can't do that if they deny his son. And so, for those reasons, I believe that the 144,000 is a symbolic number representing all of the nation Israel. And they are sealed. That's the key to this, is that they are sealed. The sealing is, is not unusual. It's not, excuse me, it's not special to them. We are sealed in Christ. Paul uses this word three times in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Paul writes, it is God who establishes us with you. Establish means make firm, make unshakable, make certain. And has anointed us. Anointed means chosen or empowered or identified as belonging to God. And who has also Put his seal on us. A seal in the Bible, a seal in the ancient times, is similar to seals today. They, they identify the owner. It's like a luggage tag and a lock on a suitcase. It identifies the owner, it protects the contents, and it proves that the thing is genuine because it's been sealed. It is God who establishes us with you and has anointed us and has, who also has put a seal on us and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And that's the seal, is the Holy Spirit. The seal is not something physical that's done to us. It's not a name that's written on us. It's not even a name written on our souls. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. That becomes a huge issue in Acts chapter 2. Do, do you remember As Peter was preaching, he closed his message by saying, if you will repent and believe, you will be given the gift of the Spirit. 
Not gifts so that you can demonstrate miraculous abilities, but the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the seal of God upon his people. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul writes, In Christ also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit's presence in somebody's life is a seal. It is a guarantee that they will be saved. It is impossible for someone to receive the Holy Spirit and go to hell. <coughs> what about Saul? What about David? It's a different time. Saul and David were anointed with the Holy Spirit, not for regeneration, but for kingship. It was not a matter of salvation, but of ruling the people of God. If we don't receive the inheritance after we have been sealed by God, he's a liar. That's what's being said. And then Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So God's seal has a purpose. It does something. And we are sealed until the day of redemption comes about, which means we are sealed and protected all the way through every risk. And it's only after all the risks are gone that that seal can be opened. He has perfected his salvation within us. How perfect is this seal on Israel? To come. And how perfect is this seal on us? Verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, <coughs> clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How perfect is the seal of God? It's flawless. It's flawless. If you've been sealed, you will not be unsealed. If you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit for new birth, And as a guarantee of the inheritance of God, you won't lose the Holy Spirit. God is going to accomplish what he set out to do. Now, there are people who are convinced that God's work is not perfect, that God's work is not complete, that we have to complete our own salvation in some way, that we have to ratify it, we have to activate it, we have to cooperate with it through good works or good intentions or or working up faith from within ourselves. But here's the thing. Those who think they have to activate or ratify or apply their own salvation through some means or another must also believe that it can be lost as quickly as it was was gained. There's simply no basis for believing that, that we do something or things that cause us to be saved, but once we're saved, we can't become unsaved. You can't appeal to two different arguments on opposite sides. Their eternity ultimately depends upon them. But since they still have sinful flesh, they can never have peace. 
And the Bible says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Since their salvation and the continuation of their salvation depends upon them, but they still have sinful flesh, they can never have assurance. Because they can't say what they'll do tomorrow. That's actually the Roman Catholic view. Even somebody like the Pope within Roman Catholicism can have no assurance because he could commit a mortal sin tomorrow and lose justification and then die of a heart attack and go to hell. So it doesn't matter how high you are within the hierarchy, there's never a place where you receive true peace or you can have any kind of assurance. But John says at the end of 1 John, he says in chapter 5, These things I have written to you who believe, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, he says, so I'm writing these things to you who have been born again, so that you can have assurance that you're born again. He doesn't say, I'm writing this to the wicked. He says, this, he says I'm writing this to Christians. I'm writing this to the Christians who wake up afraid. I'm writing this to the Christians who go asleep afraid. Who look at their lives. Who compare themselves to somebody else. And think, well, she's really got it all together. He's a great Christian. And because you don't match up, because you don't measure up, you start thinking, well, I must have not. There's something wrong. I wonder if. And John says, I'm writing to you so that you can have assurance. The assurance is not based on being able to look in your wallet and pull out your, your, your membership card in the church. Your assurance is based on your faith in Christ, and it's based on the transformation that Jesus has begun to work in your life. But we don't have assurance based on our flesh. We have assurance based uh, or assurance rather, in spite of our flesh. And so we see the perfection of God's saving work, that there is a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's fascinating. If you go back into chapter 4 and chapter 5, you see the living creatures and the 24 elders around the throne, and you see the Lamb of God before the throne, here you don't see the multitudes outside that inner circle. Here you see the multitudes in that inner circle as born-again Christians, as born-again people of God, sealed by God, saved by grace through faith because of the, the wrath-satisfying death of Jesus Christ. So they are before the throne, not around the throne, before the throne, face-to-face -face with their Savior, in a position of intimacy and safety. They're dressed in white, and we find out that elsewhere that that white is the righteousness of Christ. We know that the white robes that we receive are the righteousness of Christ in which we are dressed. It's what Romans 3 says is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
Now, for me as a Protestant to look at this and say, okay, there are people in heaven perfectly dressed in the righteousness of Christ, that's nice, but I would expect to see that. But for those of you who might have a Roman Catholic background, you don't expect to see that. There's nobody in heaven right now who... who who, well, actually, no, that's not true, is it? Everybody in heaven right now is dressed in the righteousness of Christ, but you've got all kinds of people who are in purgatory because they don't have any righteousness, because they don't have sufficient righteousness, because they've got to deal with their own sin. So we have a, a multitude that no one can number before judgment's ever taken place. And they're dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and they're crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And, and then that, that song is taken up by the angels. We, we saw earlier that it's the living creatures and the elders who lead out and the angels who respond, and then all creation responds. Now you have us in heaven leading out. And the living creatures and the angels responding to what we say. And you know what they say? When we say that, they say, Amen. Because we're right. Salvation does belong to our God and to the Lamb who sits upon the throne. And look at how the people of God are described. Look at what heaven is like. Verse 15 this multitude of saints, they are before the throne of God. It's a position of closeness. It's a position of intimacy. They serve him day and night in his temple. <coughs> That's a picture of honored service and humility. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. No purgatory, no fear, no punishment being sheltered by the Lord. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. I know when you look at that, you, you, you know what that means, but I'll remind you of what it means. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He's not saying you're not going to want a, a Big Mac and a Coke anymore. This is John the follower of Jesus who knows that hungering and thirsting is hungering and thirsting to be right with God. And he says, there is no more hunger. There is no more thirst. They're right with God. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. All of those earthly sufferings are ended. There's no more need. There's no more want. For the lamb in the midst of their throne will be the shepherd. Now think about this. Jesus is a shepherd lamb shepherding his lambs. Jesus is the shepherd lamb who shepherds his lambs. If, if anywhere within your heart, if anywhere within your soul, within your mind, you have fear of the Lord Jesus right now, what's happening is your own flesh is saying, maybe the lamb is a wolf. The shepherd of our souls is a lamb, and he shepherds his lambs. We have nothing to fear from him. 
He will guide them to springs of living water, just like being hungry and thirsty is not about physical needs. This is not literal water. John is looking back to what Jesus said. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, by which he meant the Holy Spirit, by which is meant eternal life. No more thirsting because we've been made righteous and instead, a spring of living water, constant eternal life flowing. Everything in heaven is aimed at eternal life, eternal peace, eternal righteousness, eternal intimacy, eternal love with God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So there's comfort, not punishment. There's comfort, not discipline. There's comfort, not retribution. There's comfort, not retaliation. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Because Jesus paid it all. He satisfied the wrath of God. There is no longer any wrath of God for his people. Jesus didn't die as a token. He didn't die as an example. He died as a substitute. He bore your death. Now, you, can, you still continue to sin. You still have sinful flesh. I remember what that was like. I know what that's like. All of us have sinful flesh. If we have to keep ourselves saved, this is what I think, if we have to keep ourselves saved, let's give it up. We can't. But we don't keep ourselves saved. He has declared us righteous. He has not yet made us righteous, but he has declared us righteous with his own righteousness. Satan is not our judge. Satan is not the prosecutor. I've seen, I've seen judgment described this way. God the Father is the judge on the bench. Jesus is the defense attorney. Satan is the prosecutor. No. God's on the bench. God's the prosecutor. God's the defense attorney. And Satan is the first defendant. He comes into that courtroom in handcuffs and a belly chain. And he loses immediately. We have nothing to fear from the judge because the prosecutor is our defender and our defender died because we were guilty. He's not a defense attorney who gets us off. He's a sacrifice who said, yeah, she's guilty. He's guilty. I'll take everything. I'll take the full penalty. And when Jesus died, he didn't just die to forgive your sins and to make you clean. He also died, if you will, for the wrath of God. He took my sins to make me clean. And he took the wrath of God to make me a child of God. Because of my flesh, I keep sinning, but he died for those sins. And because of his perfect sacrifice, he bore the wrath of God, and there simply is no more wrath of God to come. He bore it all. Jesus paid it all. You see why the gospel is so great? You see why we have to reach out to people who are trapped in systems that say you have to work? They can't. They can't. 